Hey there, banditos. Welcome to another Dollar Bin Bandit Wednesday on September 7th. We hope you all had a great Labor Day weekend. I am Joe Marcello. I'm Warren Phillips. I'm Mike Farah. And uh, like I said last week, we're going to help make the end of the summer a little less painless. Uh, a little less painful, that's what I meant to say. Uh, and what better, better way to do that than with a returning guest? We're talking to none other than Fabian Nicieza. Now, you may know Fabian from his various uh, work on X-Men titles, uh, his introduction of Deadpool, Shatterstar, and Domino. And you may also know him from a previous interview on the Dollar Bin Bandits. Yes, I, I missed that original interview, so it was so cool to uh, talk to him. I actually got to meet him at Terrificon, now to sit and pick his brain a little bit about New, uh, New Warriors, uh, the character Rage, which I was always a big fan of. Uh, so cool to hear his stories, and what a nice guy to take the time again to, uh, to speak with us. Yeah, I picked his brain a little bit more on the X-Men um, crossovers, like Executioner Song and all of those. He had a lot of interesting things to say there. Definitely enjoyed Oren's uh, little uh, detour with Rage, which was cool, <laughs> and I'm sure unexpected on his part. And then we get into his new novel, uh, which is called... The Self-Made Widow, which is a sequel to his novel from last year, Suburban Dicks, which is getting, hopefully, a adaptation into a TV show. So lots going on with Fabian. Uh, so let's get to it. This is Fabian Nicia. Well, I'll start saying, sir, thank you again for joining us. Uh, we're so happy to speak to you. It's uh, my pleasure to be here. I had some questions I didn't get it was had, had last time, so... Please don't mind me as I ramble on a bit about how much I love your career. Uh, wanted to ask a question, uh, sort of a New Warriors question, but a team book question in general, because you've worked on a few of them. Um, with the team books, is it the you? Is it Marvel? Who decides the, the solo characters to push going forward? Or is it by you know fan response to the book and who this may be talking about more? I have no clue what they do nowadays or how they make their decisions publishing wise nowadays. So we're looking mm -hmm. at, at, you know, 25, 30 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, as far as my day-to-day -day involvement with, with the publishing decisions that were being made. Right. Um, and, and the truth is it was just a, a bit of a combination of everything you cite, you know, it was a little bit of um, editorial uh, uh, preference, uh, creative preference, uh, fan interest, um, mm -hmm. And, and, and you kind of throw all those things into a hopper and, and, and you just roll it around and you see what you get. Um, it, it, you know, like Nightcrawler was Dave Cockrum's go-to character when they started the relaunch of Uncanny X-Men. When Byrne took over, he really liked Wolverine and drawing Wolverine. So guess what? Wolverine became the go-to character in the way the artist was determining how the visual compositions of panels were going to go. And, and, and Chris writes to that, however, it's working out with the artist he's working with and boom, there you go. Who's Nightcrawler? Nobody cares about Nightcrawler anymore. <laughs> and Wolverine becomes a star, you know? Right. Um, so, so it, it really varies. The, I, sometimes it's me pitching an idea back in the day, even, even up through Thunderbolts, I, I'd, I'd be pitching a miniseries spinoff. And, and sometimes they said yes. And other times they said no. Um, um, so, so back in the nineties, you could pitch anything and they'd say yes. Cause they were just printing money back then. Um, 
but but in the aughts it got a little tighter like i wanted to do i, I wanted to do a citizen v in the v battalion miniseries and and they all said yeah let's do it let's go for it so we ended up doing two of them i wanted to do a moonstone limited series they said no um and i had you know the whole story broken down i thought it really was a good fun solid story but they didn't want to do it because they didn't think it would have enough um sales impact and that's fine you know it it, it, it is what it is um how they make their decisions nowadays i i got no idea uh, were there ever any characters that you saw kind of get pushed that you kind of scratched your head and were like really um i'd have to really think about that not not necessarily I, i'm I am one of those that firmly believes that, that given the right creative and editorial direction, almost any character in the Marvel or DC universe uh, has a viable four or five issue story to tell in them. Uh, that doesn't mean they necessarily warrant a monthly comic um, because by issue you know 12, you really may be tapping that well pretty dry depending on who the character is. But there's there's... This, I can do a four-issue miniseries on Turner Decentury tomorrow. You know what I mean? There's always something there that you can look at and, and, and figure out, and especially if you're working well in conjunction with an editor uh, who brings their own ideas and, and can really help hone uh, your ideas and an artist who's enthusiastic about the work and expands on everything that you're putting on the table to begin with. You know? totally. Now, as Oren said, you know, you're, you broke in on team books and you're probably your, you know, uh, a lot of your work has been on team books, although some on solo, but one of your early ones was nomad. Um, I think sort of breaking in between, you know, Avengers, new warriors, alpha flight. What was it about nomad that, um, you know, you wanted to take as a solo character from, you know, in between what you were doing on the team books? Well, first of all, Nomad was a team book because he had Bucky on his back in the backpack. Um, so, you know, him and the baby made a team. Uh, <laughs> she, she was a terrible shot. She just couldn't, she's nowhere near as good a shot as Charlton Heston. But she, <laughs> um, the, I, I, I loved the idea of the 50s Cap and Bucky from the days those first, those original comics came out. Um, when, when Steve Englehart and Sabi Summer were working on Captain America, I bought that whole storyline off the newsstand racks. I wasn't even a monthly Captain America reader at all. I'd occasionally pick up a Captain America comic if it looked interesting. And that storyline just jumped out at me and my brother on the rack. So we bought it. And I loved the concept of those two characters and, 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 I saw they did other stuff with the Steve Rogers character, which I wasn't a big fan of because um, too much of it was too predictable. And and then luckily, um, Mark DeMattis brought the character back in Captain America when he was doing the run with Mike Zek. And, and Mark is... Mark is a well, first. He's a wonderful person, but he's an, he's an excellent, smart writer, and and he saw what the true potential for this character was. the The true potential for the character is not becoming the grand dictator Adolf Hitler of America for the, is which is what they did with Steve Rogers doppelganger. The the real the real strength in developing a character like that is trying to make them find the right way to survive and, and thrive in a, in a world that is not what they, they think it should be, or they envisioned it would be, and then start feeling guilt about the way they thought and acted in, in their past as they start to learn 
more about the present. Um, and and I, I, I love that concept. And it was always there, but never fully played with because Jack Monroe was a supporting character in Captain America. He only appeared occasionally. Um, what that meant is by the time I started working at Marvel in 1985, um, there was an opportunity to try to, to do something with that character. Um, and little by little, as I became friendlier with Mark Grunwald over the course of the first couple of years I was there, um, I, I would bounce some of my thoughts about it off of him. And he was very enthusiastic about it because he, he liked Jack Monroe and he used him, but he never would have used him the way I had planned or wanted to use him. And I, I and I, I there I had rough sketches and drawings of the costume from like the the revised version of the costume before way before I even sold the first Marvel Comics Presents story. Um, and the Marvel Comics Presents story that I wrote, I think Javier Saltares drew it, um, was actually a bastardization of a story that I had a Robin story for DC that I had tried to sell the new talent showcase when I first got out of college in 1983. Hmm. And that exact same story basically was, 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 was done with Robin and Dick Grayson. And the editor of new talent showcase uh, was a, a man named Sal Amendola. He liked the story so much that he actually called me to have a meeting with him at his office at DC now, I just got out of college. I was super psyched. Whoa, this is my big chance. Here I come. I'm going to write Crisis Before Marv Wolfman. Does. <laughs> um, and, um, and I went to his office, and he had my plot pinned on his bulletin board behind me. And the first words out of his mouth were, I want to tell you that I'm not able to buy your story because it, it's, it touches on way too many subjects that are uh, too dicey for, for DC right now and for Robin as a character because of his licensing stuff, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I was so impressed by your story that I have it behind me because I want to refer to it and talk to other people about it. So if, if you have an opportunity to do more pitching, whatever, blah, 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 pitch. So I said, okay, fair enough, fantastic, yada, yada. I was disappointed, but I was also excited. As often happens in the creative world, you get a no, but at least leave a door open for a yes, which is great because um, most of the times we just get a no and half the times that we get a no, we don't even get a reason why. So you're in the wilderness, you know? Um, so so of course I tried to pitch Sal stories after that and he was fired by DC like a month and a half later. So there went that opportunity. But after I got my job at Marvel, I just said, I, I, this story works really well for Nomad. More importantly, it lets me springboard into a mini series that, that I could develop off of this eight page story that, that was a nomad miniseries. It wasn't a Robin miniseries that I tailored to nomad. It was a nomad miniseries. So I just used that story as my, as my starting point. And, and, um, and between that story appearing in Marvel Comics Presents and um, the first issue of the first miniseries, there was a couple other little backups I did. I did an annual backup with Nomad. I I had him basically, I had set that he was in Alaska. So I already started my map in my head as to where he was going to be going. Um, and I, it, it's not a matter of team book or superhero book or anything like that. I just felt like the character would give me an opportunity to tell the kinds of stories that, a, I wanted to explore outside of the bigger playground that is Marvel Comics, um, 
and, and and B, it would it would let me tell the kinds of stories that Marvel I felt wasn't telling enough of. Um, and I'm I'm you're, you're I'm thought of as an incredibly absurdly mediocre mainstream guy, but during my time at Marvel, I pushed a lot of buttons and I I tried to push a lot of envelopes, but I did it within the system. So you didn't hear about it much. It wasn't an outside yakking. It was an internal de- debate, discussion, prodding, pushing, try- trying to get us to do more and different things and more and different kinds of stories. I-, I felt we had lost our way in the 80s, especially when I started working there in 85. I felt we had lost our way, that we were no longer the company that would that would have the first African-American character, you know, in a comic that would have the first drug story in a comic. I mean, the, the, so I felt like we needed to get back to that a little more, which is ironic because it ultimately caused tremendous problems with Nomad as a book and with me as a as a as a, as a writer and employee at Marvel, because, um, because, you know, I started pushing it specifically pushing harder at a time when the company's owners who were not marvel comics it was scumbag billionaire ron perlman um they wanted less and less of that because they were fearful that it would damage their stock price Mm. um as ludicrous as it sounds that's exactly the the reason they maintain for not wanting to do anything in, in the books um so anyway the I, I, nomad was a great opportunity for me at the time to to just flex muscles that i didn't have yet um, I, it's the only book I've ever written in my career that I say I would, I would probably relish the opportunity to write it again, because I think I would write it much better now that I'm older, uh, better, more perspective, more experience, more everything. Um, but that being said for its time, it, it, it pushed, it pushed a lot of envelopes for Marvel, a lot of limits, uh, within what, what a code approved comic could be considered and what Marvel would, would allow themselves to do, you know? Um, the each issue, each issue for the most part had its own, its own little theme that, that we tried to tackle. And, and many of them were, were, you know, new ripped from the headlines kinds of things, um, that, that just, you couldn't really have done that even with Spider-Man or Daredevil in the same way that you could with Nomad. And to that point, um, one character that you worked on that I, I liked a lot because, it was somebody at the same, almost the same age as me, but the character was Rage, who was, you know, young, um, felt because he was indestructible, like young kids do, and somewhat confused and angry at the world, like teenagers can feel. Um, and I thought the way he was handled, I, I liked when he was sort of pushed in the books a lot. Uh, what were your thoughts on the character? And could he have been... Oh, you- I, I, Rage was a pretty... Um- a, a pretty polarizing character in the offices. A lot of people didn't like him. Okay. Um, I was not one of those. I liked him a lot. I never would have asked to, to take him for new warriors if I didn't like him. Right. Um, uh, the problem with the reason a lot of people didn't like rage is because they felt he was forced on the Avengers. Uh, Larry, Larry who created Larry Hama who created rage was forcing him on the Avengers. They felt he, sh- he wasn't, he wasn't a primetime character that deserved a slot on the Avengers. You can't argue that that because it's accurate, you know. Um, and the the real flummoxing thing for the character and for Larry, I think, is that he introduced Rage in a way that it was a 13-year-old boy having to pretend he was an adult 
among adults. Right. And that that almost automatically is going to lead you into territory where your character won't be likable. They won't say the right thing or do the right thing because because they know they're a 13 year old pretending to be an adult, but the adults don't, don't know that. I felt he would be a much better fit in New Warriors because he could be the age he was. Um, and and, and I, I think, I wish in, in hindsight, I wish Derek Robertson, who was drawing the book uh, while Rage was in it, um, hadn't um, hadn't changed the way Paul Ryan was drawing him because Paul Ryan was drawing him to look like he was a you know 30 year old massive boxer wrestler type guy and Derek drew him to look a little more baby faced uh, a little a little more doughy less threatening less menacing um, less gruff um, and, and it played off well when he's hanging out with the other characters because he looked like a steroid overgrown boy um but but it didn't play as well in terms of what the dynamics of that character was that being said he didn't need to 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 look like an adult as much anymore because he wasn't among adults he didn't need to look tough and bigger because he was alongside thor and and captain america because now he was alongside speedball you know and nova so he he could he could look like a big dopey kid um and that was okay because he was among dopey kids um and it was fun i liked him i thought he was an interesting character i still do they haven't done much with him i don't think in 30 years they haven't done much with any of those new warriors other than nova in 30 years and that's fine by me because anytime they try to do anything, I, I'm not a big fan of it. So, um, so, so, uh, I, I, I like. I thought the character worked really well in New Warriors, um, I, I, more so than he did in Avengers. Oh, hundred percent, hundred percent. Not to continue with the dichotomy, even though we are, as I look at our questions between you know team books and uh, and, and solo books, but um, or solo characters, uh, and even within team books. But I wanted to ask you about some of the um, X-Men crossovers, uh, just in a general sense. You know, you were contributors or, or contributor um, to Executioner's Song, Phalanx Covenant, uh, Age of Apocalypse. Um, what, you know, looking back on those, what were your thoughts about um, them as, you know, storytelling devices? Were they, did you feel they were successful or were they sort of forced upon the books to you know, do sales and, and if a little, you know, of and what were your favorites? Um, I, I, I think some of them were incredibly successful, both creatively uh, and, and specifically and not um, creatively and financially, obviously financially, but certainly they were, some of them were successful creatively. More importantly, many of them were successful in terms of the long-term ramifications on the books and the characters. And that's when you know you did something well, um, and the quality is always subjective. But when you're still referencing stories 30 years later, you you did something well. If you're still referencing Silver Surfer and Galactus trilogy <laughs> from the original FF in the 60s, 40, 50 years later, you did something right. You know, um, and and to this day, we still have a lot of threads from specifically Executioner's Song and, and Fatal Attractions, uh, and to a, a lesser extent, but still the onslaught one that I wasn't a part of because I'd already left by then. Mm-hmm. Um, th- those things still r- have ramifications on the characters and the titles to this day. Um, I, I, 
they were always they were always forced on us as part of the budgetary expectations that that the company's publishing uh, revenue had to meet. Uh, and we knew that an X crossover was going to increase the budgetary returns by X percentage for that quarter. Um, I I really had a problem with it when when they they started increasing the quantity of them. So we went straight from Fatal Attractions literally a month later into Blood Ties, and that was really infuriating to all of us um, because it, it it wasn't it wasn't organic to the creative process, and it, it was totally forced on us because uh, I, if I recall, something else got taken out of the budget that was going to be in the fourth quarter. And that meant that we had to increase some revenue in the fourth quarter. Um, and we were coming right off of Fatal Attractions, which was we knew was going to sell X amount of copies, no pun intended, and was going to generate that revenue, increase the revenue generation for the third quarter budget. So what the hell? Leave the fourth quarter budget as is. If it drops a little bit, that's fine because the third quarter generated uh, you know 10 15 percent more than what you expected no that's not how those assholes work uh, so, <laughs> so then, yes the third quarter generated 15 percent more revenue but we want the fourth quarter to rev to generate 20 percent more revenue you can't do that without an x crossover ding 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 guess what you're gonna have another x crossover um and, and it's the same exact rationale that went into the the winky dink covers as i call them what what started is a really fun smart proposal from the marketing department to do one or one or two a year you know <laughs> turned into one a quarter okay we can do one a quarter that's not too bad out of your whole publishing line oh uh, let's do um one a month then all right we can do one a month. let's do two or three a month all of a sudden once they start seeing your sales go up because you had a glow in the dark cover then they want everything to have a glow in the dark cover and it just becomes really frustrating in that you're caught between a rock and a hard place because you are employed by the company, you're being paid by the company, and your job is to perform for the company like a dancing monkey. Um, and, and while you're doing that, you hope that you're a good enough dancer that you can perform for yourself at certain points in time as well. Um, and, and the monkeys were getting paid really well. So we couldn't, we couldn't whine too much about it because we were making a lot of money, the people who were working on the comics back then. Um, and, and, and so the, we were making the company a lot of money, but we were making ourselves a lot of money too. So you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be cautious about how much you want to whine and complain about them. Um, I, I didn't give any of the money back. Let's put it that way. You know, <laughs> I, I, I wrote more checks to charity on a yearly basis because I could, but I didn't give the money back. I, I didn't say no, Ron Perlman. This is too much money for me here. Take take some of these extra. Please keep this for back. yourself. Yeah. You should. You need them more than yeah. me. Was you're trying to drive every company you own into bankruptcy on fake stock inflations. Anyway, um, so so. so they varied in in my recollections between enthusiasm and excitement, mostly for the early ones that I was a major part of, and and diminishing interest in returns on the latter ones that I wasn't. Uh, simple as that. I, I, I executioner song was like ninety nine percent me in terms of its breakdown and 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 literally breaking down what was going to happen in each issue. Um, taking that to a writers' conference where all of us uh, piped in, and I, I cut I cut here and trimmed here and there, and then gave everyone back you know, outlines for each issue that gave them a rough idea of what they had to do in their books. Um, Fatal Attractions was probably the most collaborative of all of them because all of us figured out what each of our issues would be 
because they were only all it was five like one you know one issue self-contained stories which is great um uh, and each of us each of us were able to determine what we wanted our individual stories to be and then toss ideas out that we weren't even going to necessarily be able to use in our book but but would work for someone else's book peter david tosses the idea about magneto pulling wolverine skeleton out of his body and that's going to end up in my book it's not going to end up in X factor, you know? Um, so, so that was, that was a good one for me because everyone got involved and everyone had their own piece of the pie as it were. Um, after that, there are just a tremendous blur. Well, phalanx covenant and then, and then what, and then age of apocalypse happened after phalanx covenant, right? Phalanx covenant, I had nothing to do with. It was all Scott and Bob. Um, I, I could care less. I had no interest in it whatsoever. I had no interest in the phalanx. I had no interest in warlock. Of, as a new mutants character i i i didn't care uh the the only reason i remember anything about Fallon's covenant is is um because tony daniels art just seemed to kick it up a notch right around that time and the issues he was doing for that crossover were really sweet because you just saw him make that leap which happens a lot with artists after six or eight issues they just make that they they just it clicks in their head and they start to they start to get uh, a cleaner and 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 more dynamic and better storytelling and panel layouts, uh, and that and that happened during Fallon's Covenant with Tony. Um, I don't I don't even remember. We introduced different new, uh, different Generation X characters in each book, right? I don't even remember yeah. which ones I introduced in mine. I don't <laughs> even, whatever. I don't care. It's thirty years ago. Seriously. Weren't you a big fan um, of Covenants at least? Of what? <laughs> of Covenants. Just in general, no. covenants. No, I'm not a fan of phalanx or covenants. <laughs> I don't want either one of them in my comics. <laughs> and and Age of Apocalypse was a gigantic cluster F. I was not happy in my role in the books at the time. We were having some problems between all of us. Um, they they I love the idea when Bob bounced the idea off of me. I loved it, but I did not like how him and Scott went off on their own to start to percolate it. Um, and and it, you know it's not all on them because I I made it plainly clear that I was having less and less interest in, in working with them. I kind of wanted to just be left alone for a little while and and get to write my books for a little while, and it just wasn't going to happen. Um, uh, there's there, there's never been a character in someone else's book that Scott Lavelle didn't want to take. <laughs> never, <laughs> even if he has twenty characters in his book, if he sees a character in another book, he wants to take it. Um, and it just became really annoying and frustrating. So I, I I thought Age of Apocalypse was a great idea and it was a great publishing program. I was never happy with the actual story itself. I was never happy with how we did the work. Uh, and the process of getting it done. We had no ending almost the three quarters of the way through the story. We still didn't know what our ending was uh, because Scott and Bob couldn't, couldn't figure it out. And I wasn't about to help. Um, uh, so, so it wasn't, it wasn't a, it wasn't an enjoyable experience. I got fired off X-Force in the middle of age of apocalypse. So I knew I wouldn't be coming back to X-Force while I was writing Gambit in the externals. So it was a, you know, it was a big, F you, my time is winding up. I'm going to milk a few more issues of X-Men out, mostly because there was a few more stories I wanted to tell. And I knew we had Paul Smith lined up to guest pencil a couple issues, and I really wanted to work with Paul Smith. Um, but I knew my time was coming due with the X-Men uh, and, and and I was going to get to kind of write. I had a I had a leeway. I had a um, I had a little uh, bridge that I was going to get to determine when I would quit. 
if I waited too long, I was going to get fired. But if I quit too soon, why would I? I'm leaving three issues worth of royalty checks on the table. And I didn't feel like doing that at that point <laughs> because I knew because I was going from like writing six books a month with a full time job to writing no books with no full time jobs. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I made the decision that 45 was going to be my last issue. Now, I spoke to some folks who were working the time and they kind of felt that the the people writing the X books were sort of their own separate entity in Marvel. And then, you know, there's other people working on other stuff. Did you ever get the feeling that you guys were sort of. Yes, absolutely. Because Bob didn't want to, Bob didn't want to share the toys too much with others in the playground. He wanted, he wanted it to be uh, almost like a separate little fiefdom. Um, And I get it from an editorial standpoint because it's much easier to manage and control Taking into account, you're you're asking a lot out of this editor. Okay, he's got a lot of responsibility and he's got a lot of burdens on his back. Um, and Bob and I had lots of problems creatively, but I've never had problems with him as a person and a friend. You know, it's always been a weird little dynamic. But I'll defend Bob to the death as far as his editorial responsibilities are concerned and how how hard he worked at that job. But I'll never defend to, his, to the at all how he handled his editorial work like creatively with with me as a writer that that'll always be a fun little you know dynamic between us um but but why would bob want to give every tom dick and harry the chance to use the x-men because in an 80 title line you'd end up having 25 titles that want to use every other character from your line and then you got to read all of those plots to approve them, read all of the scripts to approve them, coordinate the the appearance to make sure that it doesn't contradict or fits in with your own continuity. They couldn't even handle their own continuity in their eight titles or nine titles, the X office. They contradicted themselves on a weekly basis. You know, they, 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 they had Mr. Sinister appear like six times in, 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 in one month or something. It was just, it was just a complete mess. So how are you going to do that with the rest of the line? Because every, everybody, every Danny Fingerworld's going to want to use every X-Men and every issue of Dark Hawk. I, I, everyone's going to start clawing at you and picking away at you. It's a pain in the ass. Um, so, so Bob, Bob would, Bob would, Bob would dole it out like a godfather doles out, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> cannolis. Here, you get a cannoli. Okay, man, don't ask me for a cannoli again for a few months. Okay, you get one. Um, and I get that. I, I do. I really do. Um, there, if other people complain about that, tough nuts. Yeah. You, you know, you, you you don't have that job, and and you don't have that 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 responsibility. He he, he was expected to generate over. 30% or more of the company's entire publishing revenue for the year. I mean, come on, like, right. you know, that, that it's, it's just, it's just a load. It's a bear. Yeah. Um, so, so if there's, if there's a writer on another book that, that is going to complain about that, I get why you're complaining, but nerds to you, tough one, <laughs> you know, be a good enough writer that he wants to hire you to work on the books. That's what you got to do. <laughs> <laughs> Now, did you guys also kind of get a pick of the litter? Like if there was an artist doing another book and, and you guys were like, wow, he would look good. Yeah, he stole artists all the time. Okay. I mean, all how does that work? I mean, how does it work? Um, yeah. An editor on the higher selling books or, or more popular characters looks at an artist working on a book 
whether it be for your own company or another company, and says to themselves, I'd like that artist to work on my books. And then they either go behind an editor's back and call the artist directly and see and feel them out, or they go up front to the editor and say, I I really want to steal your artist. What's the, what's your situation with him? You know? Um, And, and it happened both ways all the time. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and, and Bob, Bob stole artists all the time. It's the spider office stole artists too. everybody, you know, most of the artists wanted to work on Spider-Man or the X books because they were selling so many copies that you were making really good royalties off of it. Why wouldn't you want to make an extra five, $10,000 a month working on characters you liked since you were a kid i mean come on let, let, you know it's it, it, it's it's not rocket science guys. <laughs> um it, it's commercial art and creative commerce i mean um so so you know you you see greg capullo getting better and better every single month on quasar and len kaminsky and who's editing the book for howard mackey and mark grunwald who's writing the book they know it's just a matter of time you know, before you get stolen. But the image guys leaving all at once created a void that needed to be filled quickly. And that's when you stole Capullo, uh, you know, Stroman, uh, Casada, Andy Kubert, Adam Kubert, all of them just, you know, all at once got sucked into the X vacuum. Um, but that was rare. Usually it was a book at a time, you know, it was rare, but, and even that being said, guys, look how many difficulties they had finding a monthly artist on X factor or a monthly artist on Excalibur. Those books suffered quite a bit. X force suffered a bit for several months after Capullo left to, to go draw spawn crap. He was going to draw, um, you know, that, that X force suffered for several months until we landed on Tony and Tony improved. Um, So there was a lot of titles being done by all the companies back then. There were more new companies popping up like Valiant and Dark Horse expanding its its workload. And as a result, there was a lot more competition to to try to find artists and and hire the right artists. Right. Now, as a writer, when there's sort of like a shock to the system, like there was when the image guys jumped and like you said, the guys were pulled in. when you suddenly have a new guy you're working with like that, how quickly do you have to build a rapport with them that you feel comfortable that they're, you know, capturing? It varies. It, yeah. it really varies. Um, sometimes you get a rapport with an artist with your very first issue. Okay. Sometimes it takes three, four issues max, mm-hmm. and sometimes it never happens. So it it, it really does vary. And, and different artists, I, I felt, I have felt different levels of, um, a community of bonding, a creative um, intermeshing uh, with different artists, uh, some, some more than others. And I'm not going to name names. It's just, it's just very natural. You could say, you can ask them and they'll say the same exact thing about writers, you know, Uh, some, some they'll never bond with at all. Some takes a few issues. Some you feel like clicks right off the bat, you know? Makes sense. Um, this may be an associated question and you already dug into it a little bit, but I just wanted to extend the line of questioning was on X-Force after Rob left um, and Greg Capullo came in and, you know, yet new, not exactly. But. Yeah. Back it up. Rob's last issue he drew of X-Force was X-Force number six, right? Or seven. True. 
he did the layouts for the issue Mike Mignola drew. And right. he did really rough thumbnails, possibly for the first issue Pacella drew, but he didn't draw the book after that. Okay. So right. he wasn't drawing the book from issue eight all the way through issue 14 when Greg came along. Yes. I guess what I meant, um, did, was there someone specific that drew all those issues or were they, it was kind of no, a, a Pacella who was doing his, his, his Liefeld impersonation for several issues. Okay. To, to try to create some semblance of of cohesion to right. what had been done before. Terry Shoemaker drew an issue, um, and he's not a Rob clone at all. And then Greg came aboard. Right. Uh, but but really a lot of the burden was on Mark Pasella. He had he had a he had a tough gig. He had to draw the book really fast um and and he had to try to draw it in someone else's style. Sure. Uh, and and that 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 landed on his shoulders and Mark was a, Mark was a nice guy. And, and I think he hurt his own career by, by drawing that way, you know? Mm, yeah. um, and, 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 you know, that's not, that's not fair, but it's the, it, it was what was asked of him, what he expected of himself to, to, to provide. Um, and, and that was it, but there was there was no way I wanted that look to be the ongoing look for the book. I right. wanted it to be, um, I wanted the. I thought the book should maintain that flair and that style, but uh, but knowing Greg was coming aboard, I knew that he would be able to to provide that exaggerated flair and energy that that Rob and, uh, and Mark uh, provided the book. But I also knew that he would um, he would be able to draw a lot more of of what. What was what was needed to make it a, a better looking cohesive team book? Yeah, well, what what I appreciated about when Greg came on board, and I don't think, well, I'm not sure if it was him specifically, or your collaboration with him, or where you wanted to take the book, but it felt um, not that it didn't feel fun before, but I thought it felt especially fun and light, you know, obviously they're dealing with, you know, super villains and all kinds of stuff, but the new costumes that came in and sort of the banter, it just seemed to be a lot of fun to, to be absolutely honest about you. And, and I know you told me that, you know, you, your, your sort of tenure on the book kind of got chopped off. This was after Greg left, but was that time, I mean, was it for you guys, did you guys hit a, you know, this pace and, and I, in terms I of firmly believe that, that Greg and I um, would have taken that book to even greater heights. Had we had a chance to work on it together longer. Um, it, it's really easy though, guys. I mean, when you're working with an artist that is as good as Greg is, is now was then is just a phenomenally excellent, artist um it makes everything you do tremendously easier okay every writer's best work comes when they're working with an excellent artist and and there's no secret as to why (laughs) better storytelling better camera movement between panels better emoting from the characters more dynamic artwork that provides more energy to the pages you're reading. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's all there. And, and Greg, Greg is, Greg is so good that, that those, those issues were just phenomenally fun. I, I, I like the living hell out of them. Um, 
it would have been a better book over the long haul had we been able to to stick to stick together with it. That's not putting Tony down or anything else. I mean, Tony was a super young artist who really was cutting his teeth and learning how to draw comics on a top 10 selling title for Marvel Comics. I mean, you know, if you look at Tony's first work from X-Force Annual 2 and his first few issues that he did, he, him and Matt Broom were bouncing back and forth um, with different issues between 26 and 29 or something. Um, if you look at his initial issues, 30, 31, 32, and then you look at 43, 44, it's night and day the Tony's improvement. It's what we, we were talking about before. So Tony's a phenomenal artist. He became a phenomenal artist. Don't get me wrong, but but the Capullo was already there. You know, he he took his he took the excellent work he was already doing on Quasar, and he just kicked it up a notch in terms of the the pouches and the muscles and the lines. <laughs> more lines, just more lines per panel. Um, and, and, but but he never ever sacrificed his storytelling. And that's the key. The, the key is that it's really easy to draw a giant muscle bound figure shouting on a page and leaping forward. It's a lot harder to do it where it flows logically from the panel that came before it and the panel that follows it. And that's what a good artist and a good storyteller can do. Um, and, and that's what Greg did. He didn't sacrifice or skimp on the octane you know there was plenty of snarling and spittle going on on those pages um but you understood what happened in the panel before what was happening in the panel you were looking at and what's going to happen in the panel afterwards you you knew what was going on um and and you know that that makes it easier for the writer too because then they don't have to worry about the script having to bridge those gaps between what the storytelling isn't telling you yeah, I, I just remember such clear, well, clarity of storytelling, like you're saying, but the, the energy of that book um, at that time was, uh, it was in di- in different parts of the year, it was always, you know, the energy was always fantastically high. Uh, but they're just sort of uh, kind of a pivot, I think, a, probably a pivot away from Rob and the fill in uh i hate to use fill in arts because you know they do such they weren't work. really fill in artists Mar- yeah. Marcusella wasn't a fill in artist martin Marcusella was drawing the damn book you know right yeah yeah exactly <laughs> he did it for several months right um, right but look it, it's just it, i mean rob's energy and enthusiasm was was tremendous but rob rob has always struggled to maintain his focus okay and when he's focused, he's phenomenally fun, sure. um, and and really energetic and exciting, and and can make a twelve-year-old and make make a forty-five-year-old as if they were a twelve-year-old. Um, am I allowed to say jism on dollar? Hey, why not? Um, you just did. <laughs> the audience is going to hear beep, and they go, "What do you say? What do you say?" Um, and, and, and and the problem has always been and was that first year focus that's all it's really hard to maintain focus on a monthly comic book when you're writing penciling it and for a time inking it also when you're trying to start a new comic book company (laughs) go figure those two (laughs) things are a little bit in conflict with each other um so the focus really wasn't there um it it just wasn't there and I, i understand why it wasn't there but it was reflected on the pages of the book. 
right? That you can look at any one of those issues in the first six and and have a real clear and easy understanding as to what he actually did versus what a group of other people did to pitch in. You know, I know that I was scripting off of really, really, and I and, and I really I'm liberal with the definition of the word really loose layouts. Okay. And that's not fair to me because I'm supposed to be dialoguing. And sometimes I, I got a circle and a stick and that's telling me who the character is in the panel. It's not easy to dialogue off of a circle and a stick unless you are writing the wonderful creation Howard Mackey and I came up with, which was Circle Man and Stick Boy. Um, because <laughs> circle Man and Stick Boy was going to be the writer artist driven book where the writers were the artists and we were going to make a statement about circles and sticks. Um, but we just never could sell it to Tom. He never, he never wanted us to do circle man and stick point. Um, it, it just makes it harder to do. That's all. That's sure. all. It makes it harder, which makes it less fun. So I, I didn't have fun the first year of X-Force. It was a grind. The whole thing was a grind. So what do you think is going to happen to me as a writer when I get Greg Pulo coming in on on a book I'm finally plotting myself, you know, and our first story arc together is Executioner Song, which, which you know is 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 blowing everything up in a really fun, exciting way. That that and we were working on the books, writing them, and creating them for twelve year olds. We knew that you were twelve years old, you were ten years old, you were fourteen years old. That's who we were working for. We weren't working for, we weren't doing them for the 40 year old X-Men reader who'd been reading since the seventies, uh, the 35 year old, whatever. Um, I was a 30, what was I at that time? 33. By the time I was writing the, those books between 31, 32, uh, 30 and 33, let's say I started reading X-Men with giant size X-Men number one, when it came out on the rack and I was like 13 years old. So uh, I, I was writing the books for the 13 year olds, reading them then. Not X-Men so much as X-Force. X-Force was always intended to be for, for younger readers and, and, and be dynamic and exciting for younger readers. Um, and it was, you know, it was the older readers who whined about it, not the younger readers. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, you know, speaking as uh, a then 12 year old or 13 or 14, um, you know, big thumbs up success. You guys did it. Sure. <laughs> we know. <laughs> well, <Thanks. good. laughs> you know yeah, I'm just going to add my name to the core. I add my voice to the chorus here. Um, I, we really want to get to your uh, new book. Um, I just wanted to touch um, on something also that I thought was quite fun. And I hope you thought was quite fun when you were doing, which is Thunderbolts, which I think was recently announced to, you know, be getting uh, some sort of adaptation um, in the ever expanding, ever convoluted Marvel universe. Uh, what was your, you know, what was your experience like on that book? And, you know, what would you like to see out of, an adaptation uh, to the screen. Um, my experience on the book was tremendous fun. I liked working on it a lot. Um, I liked the book when I was reading it, when Kurt and Mark were doing it. Uh, I loved getting to work with Mark again because him and I click really, really well together. We enjoy working together a lot. Um, uh, I enjoy the characters tremendously. Hawkeye's always been one of my favorite characters since I was a kid. Um, I, I hit the ground running. I felt very confident in the work I was doing. I felt very confident that the book was entertaining. Um, 
I probably went off the deep at a few times with some of the tropes I was playing with uh, regarding, you know, villains and resurrections and, and things like that. But I was purposefully playing a thematic trope. Uh, I just overdid it sometimes, which happens with a team book because you're trying to do it three, four characters at the same time. Um, and, and I loved working with Patrick Zerker. I think he's fantastic. He was great. He was a great artist and a, and a real good guy and a real professional. Um, he, he never once whined or complained when I asked him to draw fixer popping more equipment than he's ever popped in his entire life. And I did that to him every three issues. <laughs> He'd be like, didn't he just pop more equipment than he ever popped in his entire life a few issues ago? Yeah, but he's popping more now. Okay. And, and he would draw it. It would draw it. It would just draw the living hell out of it. Um, so I liked it a lot. I didn't like getting fired by some semi brain dead young editor who was going to be turning the book into fight bolts. Uh, but I really enjoyed the fact that that only lasted a few months and, and that editor got fired and they asked me and Kurt to relaunch the book. Um, so I enjoyed that. Uh, and then I enjoyed working with Tom Grummet for a couple of years on what was a kind of a different book in, in many ways. Um, and I enjoyed that too. I wrote almost 75 issues, I think, of Thunderbolts and its related miniseries, you know, Citizen V and the V Battalion twice. Um, uh, so, so I liked it. I, um, I, I, it was a nice run. I feel good about it. I'm really glad they're collecting it. They're finally going to put out an omnibus, I think, of, of me and uh, Mark and me and Patrick's work. Um, Great. And, I, and I'm really looking forward to that because I haven't reread it in a long time and I, and I want to collect an edition so that I can work it. So, so I liked it. I, I, it was a fun book. I, I, I'm pretty proud of it. It's in the, my top five probably for, for writing experiences overall, you know. I got fired from it twice and I always was hoping I could get hired one more time just so that I could get fired a third time because that, that my friends is an accomplishment. That's something. You know? really. <laughs> if you can get fired three times from the same book, that's really saying something. <laughs> now, it's repeat. It's rare. I was going to say, speaking of writing books, I heard that you had nice segue on. Oh. <laughs> I beat you to it. That was almost as good as my Phil Grayfield. segue. <laughs> So you have a new book. Yep. There we go. Are we sharing? Yeah, I can see it. You're sharing. Okay. I know that guy. Yeah. So that's the self-made widow. That's my new book, hardcover from Putnam. It's out right now. I'm going to stop sharing because we don't need to have it on the whole time. (laughs) Okay. Um, Back to the the moneymaker. It is the second book in, in, what is currently a two book suburban dicks mystery series. Um, we'll see. We'll see if there's more. We don't know yet. Um, and, and it came out uh, June 21st from Putnam. Um, and it, it is, uh, it is a work I'm pretty proud of. I liked it. I liked writing the second one probably more than the first one, mostly because um, I knew a lot better what I was doing. Um, and, and I wanted to do something that was, um, the same but different and i got away with it i did it I, I feel like it's got a lot of similar vibes and feel and tone to the first one it's the same characters same setting um but it, it, it's got it, it's got a different um a different sensibility to the story and, and and it's a little more introspective for the characters so i i think i wanted to do almost like what you do in a middle trilogy is i i wanted to go a little darker and have the characters uh reveal of themselves a little bit more um 
And to me, in my mind, although I have like five, six, seven uh, really solid, I think, book ideas for the Suburban Dicks mysteries, um, I did always think her story, Andrea Stern, the main character story, was was a trilogy in order to get her where she needed to be. Um, and and she doesn't really get to where she needs to be until the end of the third book, uh, which I don't know if I'm going to write or not, because I don't know if I'm going to get to write it or not. Um, because now that I've written books and been paid to do that, I really feel like I would prefer to be paid to write a book rather than just write it willy nilly. Uh, <laughs> just, just seems to make it's more good sense. Good logic to me. there. And go figure, it makes more sense to my wife too. <laughs> uh, so we'll, we'll wait and see if there's going to be a contract on uh, uh, for more for more books, whether from Putnam or from someone else. We'll see. Right. Um, I, I I would like to write. I certainly would like to write more books. Period. But I would like to write more. Uh, more books with these characters because I kind of want to I want to grow them I got their stories in my brain and I've had them their stories in my brain for so long that I kind of want to grow them I want to see the characters the the kid characters get older I want to see what they're like when they hit college stuff like that you know was it always the plan to have a sort of um you know continuous story did you know that your your next book was going to be a continuation well you know what the option was mine it was a two-book contract um, because we had multiple publishers bidding on the first manuscript, Suburban Dicks, and in order to sweeten that deal, they made a two-book offer. Rather than increasing what you're going to get for one book, they make a two-book offer, which still gets you – it was a really nice contract. I'm not going to complain about it. And if the next one isn't as good, I'm okay with that too because I just enjoy writing these. And I don't – you know, I'm at, I'm at the stage in my life where that's luckily not as important as the ability to do it. I just want the companies to know I'm not going to do it for freaking free, okay? Um, so <laughs> so um, I always wanted to write a series of books. I, I, I'm a comic book writer. I, I come from monthly sequential publishing. I, I don't have, I don't have, I'm not good with one and done um, in that regard. Uh, my ideas tend to be long form development of characters and, and always has been my strength um, and my weakness too, quite frankly. So um, I always saw suburban dicts mysteries um, anytime I thought of an idea for a, a mystery, murder mystery, or uh, anytime I, I I thought of a theme that I wanted to explore, teenage suicide is a theme that I want to explore. How do, my brain always went to how do I explore that as a suburban dicks mystery? How does how does Andrea explore that theme? Um, so yes, the answer is if I could write eight or ten of them, I I, I would do it in a second, and then I'd be over 70 years old and I could retire, you know, <laughs> hey, let me put it this way. I ain't going to get through the whole alphabet. Not even poor Sue Grafton. <laughs> Sue Grafton couldn't get through the whole alphabet. She passed away when she was writing Z, Z, and she passed away. So uh, you'll, you're not going to get me to do A through Z. At most you'll get like A through L. <laughs> still not bad. It's not bad, but, you know, I feel so bad for her and her readers. Like the, the thought of writing 26 novels in a mystery series and then passing away when you're writing your 26. I mean, come on. Yeah. The, the, that's Those are the kinds of things that make me an atheist. Okay? You can't convince me there's a God when that happens. <laughs> I was convinced you were not going to go for the alphabetical, but you're just going to go for different regions. Like it would be exurban dicks and no no that's uh, you know i i think that we'd really be pushing it when i did like tundra dicks you know 
there's, be a, hard there's a murder mystery in the tundra and it's going to take two dicks to solve it. No. <laughs> um, I, I just feel like um, I, because I'm writing about what I know, because I'm writing about the suburbs all around me, the town all around me, um, th- there's so many themes that uh, about our living that I want to explore and, and the entertainment hook for me to do that is through the, the mystery, you know? Um, and I don't even think of them all as murder mysteries either. Cause like, you know, this book is a person who passes away of natural causes and only the main character thinks it's unnatural causes. Right. <laughs> um, so it's not so much a whodunit because there's no, multiple candidates in the book it, it, you know <laughs> she sets her sights on one person as having committed murder and she's going to prove that that person did it whether there's evidence or not um and, and and as a result i don't think of it as a who done it i think of it as a why done it you know um the first book was more of a who done it um two who done it so at the same time um the 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 third book is is less it is a murder mystery because the third book would be her solving the murder of her brother uh, who died, who was killed in front right near her when she was eight years old and he was 11, but she never saw who did it. And that, that is part of the trilogy because she can't become who she should be until she solves the one crime that she's never been able to solve and has always felt responsible for was who killed her brother, her older brother. Um, So, so, that's a that's a murder mystery but it's really it's really kind of not in a way because it's more about her coming to terms with her her own her own obsessions and mania you know the fourth book is is two teenage suicides simultaneous teenage suicides so there's not a murder there the the book would be about trying to find evidence that the parents led their children or co- forced their children to the point where they committed suicide. All right. So you're not trying to prove that they killed their kids because they, they didn't their kids kill themselves, right? You're trying to prove extenuating circumstances that led to that, which lets me get into all the themes about pressure on high school kids and, and academics and all of that stuff. And the third book is, is, is the themes are all about parenting and the, the difficulties and, and, and complexities of parenting. Um, and, and as a result of trying to solve her brother's murder, it calls into question a lot of aspects of her own life and her own relationship with her parents, you know? So there, yeah. how exciting do those third and fourth books sound, Putnam? Let's go, baby. So they see this, um, they're going to be writing out a check. If they're, if they're watching Dollar Bin Bandits, they're going to jump right into it. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's our core audience right there. You need to you need to tweet you need to tweet when you're ready to post this 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 interview in the podcast. You need to tweet it to Putnam's and say you should check this out. It may interest you. <laughs> Man's got a couple of ideas here and there. He's got some ideas here, maybe. <laughs> got some, um, you know, irons in the fire. Yeah. We think you should invest. Oh, in you it. know, I, yeah, it's real. I'm in a really weird place because I don't. I, I wrote Self Made Widow in 2020. You know. Uh, I haven't written a book since then, but I've been working on a truckload of other stuff. Um, I, I just today I handed in at the at the behest of my agent who represented represented me for the books. I handed in a middle reader graphic novel proposal that he wanted me to do because he he's selling middle reader graphic novels like like, you know, they're water in the desert. Yeah. Um, and, and he wanted me to do this. And I I didn't at first because it's a comic book. I don't care that it's a 180 page book. It's a comic book. And I've written a thousand comic books. I want to write more books, you know? 
Um, but then once I got into it, cause there, I had a bunch of different ideas scattered around here and there, and I sent them a folder that had a whole bunch of different ideas. And he said, I love this one. Let's do this one. I said, okay, fine. And once I started fleshing it out and then for the proposal for book publishers, they want you to do script, like sample script, not to show I can write, but they want to feel the tone of the book, you know? Um, and, and, and I ended up doing like 40 pages of, of script for the project because the I did 20 at first and the agents said, no, more script. This is great. I love it. More script. It's like, oh, yeah, but you're going to give too much. They're going to be, they're not going to be interested. He goes, more script. I go, okay, fine. So <laughs> I did like 40 pages of script for, for the proposal for crying out loud. I told him, you better sell this because I got a third of this thing written already. <laughs> it's going to take me five minutes to finish this thing. Um, I really enjoyed it. I really, really liked it. The page is different and the tone is different um it's a it's a fun sweet story about a a a kid who's trying to find a sense of place and family and 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 he's lacked it his whole life for legitimate science fictiony reasons um and and he's got to try to figure out the science fictiony reasons before he can make the next step in his life so i finished that today i submitted the third version of the proposal today uh just went in so you know I'm not I'm not sitting here waiting for the call from a publisher to write a book, but by the same token, I, I sure would like to because it's just it's just a tremendous amount of fun. Yeah. Well, I think when this episode comes out and we tweet at Putnam, your world is gonna blow up. You better get those third I, third and fourth ideas. All I know is that if 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 GP Putnam goes to Morton Steakhouse in Washington, D.C., I'm going to want a lot of people picketing and <laughs> protesting there so that GP Putnam, who's been dead for like 100 years, by the way. So the GP Putnam has to leave the, the restaurant through the back entrance. <laughs> I want my fans to protest this. <laughs> I'm going to give out my editor's home address. I'm going to give <laughs> the publicity manager at Putnam. I'm going to give out her home address. Scorched earth, man. Just do it. Yeah. Scorched earth, baby. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It, 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 if, if reason doesn't work, then there's no reason why chaos shouldn't. Go crazy. You have to. <laughs> and in the meantime, I mean, the, you know, the graphic novels for, you know, middle readers or even early readers, I mean, the graphic novels for kids in general is, I, we can tell you from, you know, having, having my daughter is eight, um, you know, Orin's daughter is a little bit older, I think 10. Um, and she just, at least my daughter just eats this stuff up. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, selling, the, the old comics, the pamphlets, no, no interest. It's a phenomenal business yeah. that the majority of, of the mainstream industry, both creative creatives companies and audiences are clueless about yeah. uh, they're clueless about it you could just see that through comics gate whining types um that, that they just have n- no understanding of what's out there and I, I do and i always have been i always keep an eye out on what's happening um and i knew i knew that the marketplace was really growing in the last five years i knew that manga came came through a cycle where it was really really popular 10, 15 years ago, kind of died down a bit. Now it's huge again. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, I, I'm fully aware that these books are, are out there. And a lot of these books are getting optioned for development for television and, and, and film. And I get that too. My, my book, my, my idea is very, very TV-able as it were. Um, and, and that's fine too. All of that's good. 
at the end of the day though for me it's still a comic book right mm-hmm. and i've written a thousand comic books so i can write a thousand and one sure you know but i i would prefer to write book three or tv script one i just want to you know i just want to do different things before i, I i'm you know I, I get alzheimer's at 90 like my mom got i can't write anymore <laughs> I only got 30 years left, damn it. Yeah, you, you got a while to go. Don't sell yeah. yourself short. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know if you want to read what I'm going to be writing at 75. No, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> late bloomers, you can. <laughs> it's going to be pretty. Well, I sold my first book at like 58 years old, but then it got published at 60 years old. Exactly. So See, there you go. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fabian, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. As usual, Always, even guys. though this is the second episode, um, uh, you know, putting you through p- putting you through the ringer, we still have questions that we left on the table. So maybe we'll leave it open for a trilogy that you know finishes off your well finishes off your story until the legacy sequel when you are seventy five and have written Fine, yeah. even more. Yeah, there you go. Unfortunately, uh, though, the way the way book publishing works, Mike, you won't have me back on again for like four more years because <laughs> even if they decide they'd want to do a third, I'd still have to write the manuscript. And then they still schedule it two years down the road. It's a, book publishing is just blows my mind with how stretched out that rubber band is. You know, I, I submitted the first draft of Self Made Widow in November of 2020, and it got published in June of 2022. Yeah, you know, and Suburban Dicks came out in 2021. I get you're not going to put out two books the same the same year, you know. Um, but but it's just that that long lead time, you know. Even if I started writing the book tomorrow, I, I wouldn't be done with the first draft until probably February, roughly, uh, mm-hmm. of next year. You know, this one this one took me November, uh, March to November, so it took me like six six seven months, I guess, to do it. March, April, May, June, July, August, September, October, November, nine months months. total, you know? Um, And and I'm at a point now where I feel so comfortable with the format and I have the third books like 80% outlined already um, in in terms of chapter breakdown um, that I I could hit the ground running and, and get it done quickly, you know? But that still precludes us from having a dollar bin bandit in like 10 months together. True. And you don't I want mean, to do we a can show find just an excuse. on my use. We can do a progress report. <laughs> we could. You're right. Halfway through. Yeah. I'll, I'll read. I'll read page 78 of the manuscript. <laughs> uh, and you don't want to do a dollar bin bandit just about my seven page Nova story in Marvel Comunidades anthology, which is coming out in September. Although the art by Paco Medina and Walden Long is just sublime it looks great and sam alexander's a real fun character to write i like him a lot yeah. so i got to i got to do a little nova story for them that's and, awesome yeah i was gonna segue into any other uh not that you're not busy with all the other stuff but any other work uh or anything uh, else yeah, you want to the, the image book i'm doing with kurt uh and and Stephen mooney comes out sometime next year uh we're not going to schedule until we have like the first yeah. arc done right. so that we know it'll come out once a month um and it's a pretty hefty workload, uh, book-wise. Um, Free Agents is the, is the name of the book, okay. um, and and it's part of a whole little world of titles that Kurt is is relaunching or launching new. And he asked me if I wanted to work with him on this uh, quite a while ago. It's been it's been percolating for over two years, um, 
and and, and I, I like working with Kurt. It, it Sometimes it's like, you know, hitting your head against the wall. And other times it's like dancing in a field of lilies. And I like that about it because it's a good dynamic. And we've known each other for 30 plus years and been friends. So um, it, it's really good because it's kind of like, what if X-Force had an opportunity to not be X-Force? What would they be? Um, so so it's a group of inter, interdimensional soldiers of different races who are stranded on Earth uh, without their commanding officer who was lost in the final battle they had. And they're on a planet that is not part of this interdimensional war that they've been a part of their entire lives. And they can't get back to that interdimensional war because they closed the breach behind them, which led them to Earth. Um, and now they have to decide who are we and what are we going to be. And for the first time in their lives, they are free agents and, and they have to they have to figure themselves out. And by the end of the first issue, there's a big monkey wrench that gets thrown into the mix, which is going to is going to complicate their lives even more than they already are. Um, so it's interesting. It's all new characters. Um and and it's fun to it's fun to build something new from scratch and and figure it out as we go along in a lot of ways, which is kind of kind of interesting. We're discovering things about the characters every time we have back and forths and and go through. And Stephen is starting to draw the first issue now, so so I'm looking forward to starting to see some art come in as well. That's awesome. I can't give you a release date because I don't know what it's going to be, but I, I'm confident it'll be mid to late 2023 that okay. we'll see free agents come out. Well, fingers crossed. Well, that's great. Um, uh, if you don't mind repeating, even though we have it on previous episodes, you know where folks can find you. Your fans uh, want to follow all your good. You good can work. contact me anytime through my website, which is fabianisiesa.com. Uh, hopefully, soon to be the most misspelled URL on the planet. Um, <laughs> you thought you thought typing out prawn hub instead of porn hub was going to was a popular miscue imagine what fabian Niciesa is going to lead you to um you can also get me on twitter at fabian Niciesa, uh, instagram f Niciesa, and uh through facebook uh my dms on twitter are always open as well so so you can contact me that way just don't ask me to read your script um so so i am pretty accessible and easy to, to reach out on social media awesome. well um it was absolute pleasure to talk to you again um the book is the self-made and now i'm gonna you know self-made widow there it is um fabian Nicieza, novelist fabian Nicieza. we got that story from last time your name edgar kid. award edgar and seamus award nominated oh. author fabian Nicieza. Right. not edgar award winning author <laughs> You're in well, convention. You know, really, just being nominated is what <laughs> that's what I hear. Anyone can win. Yeah. But being nominated, that's You're a lot harder. That's, that's something right there. You're on the short list there. Yeah. I was uh, the oldest Edgar Award nominee for first time American author this year. All the other nominees were substantially younger than me. You're kicking open doors, man. I'm I mean, kicking open doors for the elderly. Unfortunately, <laughs> our legs are so brittle that we break and fall. <laughs> You're gently pushing open doors. I tried my shoulder. Oh, my arm. <laughs> doors may or may clavicle. not open, but you're trying. <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I didn't even realize because I'm so old. It's just like an it's a door. I just need to step on the pad and it would have opened up on its done. own. <laughs> I just so walked you, into it. 
<laughs> so yes, thank you. Self-Made Widow is on sale now. Suburban Dicks, the first book in the series, is on sale now. You can read the second book without having read the first book. I think that they work really well if you read them in order, but I have OCD that way. Um, you, the, the book was written uh, pretty carefully to make sure that uh, you got all the information you needed to know about the characters moving moving into the book. Uh, it's already got like a 4.3 or 4.4 out of 5-star reader rating so far on goodreads which is the uh, you know yeah. uh, the 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 site a lot of book readers go to right. um and, and not a single two star or one star rating yet which is pretty good because that means oh, we'll no one's hating that. it. <laughs> suburban dicks got got about a hundred two and one star ratings which i kind of expected because it was people who it was mostly white people who didn't like that you know the white people were the bad guys in the book um <laughs> That that was kind of I was kind of expecting that one. Um, so there were fun, a bunch of Kens and Karens who gave it one and two stars, um, but but so far, self made widow, white people are loving it. <laughs> Yay! Well, good. More yeah, reason for us to go get it. <laughs> way, way to not screw up for a change, Caucasians. <laughs> you just give us the names of addresses that people give us one and two stars, and we'll go talk to them. I don't, you know, it's like I barely pay attention to it. It was Karen H. It was Jenna L. It was Leanne oh, Q. It was. Yeah. <laughs> I, well, since I we're white people, actually, we know the other white got, people. So we'll get it's, it's funny you mentioned it because I was actually going to write a list of anyone who gave me a one or a two star review, just the name. Yeah. Uh, and and then during interviews like this, I say, I don't pay any attention to that. It was, and read all of it. <laughs> <laughs> so, you can have you a scroll focus. at the end. Yeah, then, yeah, like, yeah. you credits. can't focus. Yeah, scroll, scroll over my face. <laughs> you, can't, you can't focus <laughs> on that kind of thing. And the names are running over my face as we're doing it. <laughs> And we're back. Uh, great interview, guys. Uh, I'm sorry I couldn't attend this one. Uh, Fabian's a great guest. I really appreciate his work, and I really appreciate him telling it like it is. Uh, I have. I, I was able to get uh, one of his previous novels. Uh, I started reading it. It was uh, Suburban Dicks. Mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, interesting, interesting book. Um, I believe as we... Uh, discussed in the previous interview, it's kind of loosely based on his his own experiences in his neighborhood at the time. So, uh, yeah, really cool job on uh, this interview. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, wonderful guy. You know, he and Ron Lim and Mark Wade, they're, you know, the returners, maybe a three-peat at some point. Oh, and Ron uh, Mars, too. Forgot don't for, don't forget the Ron Club. The Ron Club is an exclusive club. We've added Fabian to it. Uh, but no, he's a, a cool guy. And like Joe said, he tells like it is. He's very honest about what was going on in his career, his thoughts on things. And um, for a guy of his stature to, to be that open, it, it's fantastic. Yeah, we love having Fabian on. He may be the first three-peat. We're waiting on that list to see which of our returning guests is number three, the first number three. Uh, but for now, that'll do it. So, guys, thanks for listening. Uh, remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we will see you next time. The Dollar Bin Bandits are Oren Phillips, Joe Marcello, and Mike Farah. New episodes release every Wednesday and Friday. You can find us on all the socials at Dollar Bin Bandits on Facebook and Instagram at DB Bandits on X. For more super nerdy discourse, join the Dollar Bin Banter group on Facebook. You can email us at dollarbinbandits at gmail.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you found this episode. 
It's the easiest and most helpful way to grow the show. Looking for merch? Search us up on TeePublic. And if you want to support what we do, smash that support button on our website, dollarbinbandits.buzzsprout.com. Thank you to Sean McMillan for our graphics and Pat McGrath for our logo. Thank you to our friends at Tomorrow's Publishing, T-W-O-M-O-R-R-O-W-S.com. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, banditos.